0: Welcome, everybody, to the 15th episode of Chelsea Against the World, the podcast that brings together an American and an Englishman to discuss all things Chelsea Football Club. I'm your host, Manny.
1: And I'm your host, Simon. And we are joined today by a third person, a very special third person.
0: We have our friend, John Sloop, professor of communication studies at Vanderbilt University and author of his new book, Soccer's Neoliberal Pitch, The Sports Power, Profit, and Discursive Politics. How you doing,
1: John?
2: I am fine. Thank you for having me here.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. We it's are very ex-
2: excited to have our first guest, and it to be you. Oh, it's exciting. It's very exciting.
0: So, John, give us a little bit of over- overview about yourself, how you come to Nashville, how you become a soccer fan, and how Chelsea... became a huge fan of Chelsea Football Club. Uh,
2: Well actually um, I'm happy to do that and it's in in the book it's part of the introduction because I think it's important to understand uh, the passion that you have that we have for this collectively a lot of soccer fans. So I grew up uh, in Asheville, North Carolina and I'm not going to believe me don't roll your eyes I'm not going to rehearse my entire past but it's important I grew up in the south uh, ended up going to graduate school at the University of Georgia, then Iowa, and then I was fortunate enough to get a job offer at Vanderbilt and returned here. Now the reason I'm pointing out that I was from the South is that I grew up Despising soccer, I was one of those very, very traditional sort of normal people who would tell you it's so boring, and I would all the cliches I would bring out the zero-zero draws, nothing happens, etc. So I just I hated soccer, and I would tell people the only way to make this fun is to give those guys guns, which sounds like a sort of <laughs> southern guy like let them chase each other because I didn't know what was going on. Uh, one of my very best friends from undergraduate school had, uh, had you know, done a lot of traveling around the world, ended up settling in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I went out to visit. To, to make a long story short, he told me he wanted to go see some soccer. Portland didn't even have an MLS team at the time, they had a USL team, and it was not even their USL team, it was their developmental league version of the USL team. And he said, this will be fun, and I thought, I can't think of anything more dreadful. But he said, those magic words, it's Portland, they'll be great beer so yeah. went to the game and <clears throat> when I by the time I left I was thoroughly addicted now I want to be very clear about this because it's important didn't understand what was going on on the pitch didn't really care it still looked like grown men young men chasing around a ball randomly and f- by luck every once in a while it went into a net or you know <laughs> I just I really I, I didn't see what was going on didn't see it develop the crowd was phenomenal. The, the, I'd never experienced a sport without the training wheels of or whatever mm. the announcers were doing, telling people how to cheer. And while, while some of the chants and cheers they do have now become familiar and cliche to me, and in fact, I'm tired of hearing some of them because we all do them, the, at first watching a fan base for 90 minutes stand the entire time and chair on the team, regardless of how they were doing, was amazing to me, just amazing. You can interrupt me at any point. Uh, I'll, I'll go straight into this. When I returned back home from Portland, I wrote my friend and said, I, I want to watch more. What should I watch, etc." He started educating me about MLS and how it worked in USL, and he said, uh, if you want to watch Premier League, it's the best soccer in the world, and you'll actually notice a the difference. And then I said, who should I watch? And he said, I'm a Manchester City fan, so you they should exist. watch- exist.
0: Uh, <laughs> we found one.
2: <laughs> well, we did, and he's a, he was a Manchester City fan because they had played a, they were doing a summer tour and played Portland, and so he just chose the team that way. Fair. So I started watching, thinking I would be a City fan, but I didn't have any commitments, et cetera. And I, 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 know, I was about to say I don't know what it was, but I do know exactly what it was every time I watched Chelsea. And this is this – is, this is, I'm a really late to the game. You have to understand that. But every time I watched Chelsea, John Terry and Drogba, it seemed like I would watch that team fall behind, and they would fight like – it was like visible how much they were fighting to win right, to, to win, and would seem to gather the team around him in a way that I didn't see when I watched other teams, and it was just completely addictive, right? So even when things weren't going super well, it was still amazing to watch. Uh, so I fell in love with Chelsea, and I, I don't know how to describe it other than it felt very religious, uh, it felt like, uh, or, or falling in love. I, I'm, I'm not just, this was different than I've become a fan of a sport, or I've, it became identity. Uh, yeah. And it's, it might seem embarrassing to say that, but I think this is important about soccer. I think there's something about the way it works. I think the lack of scoring has something to do with it, actually, because you're in such angst the entire time watching It does watching mean the
1: something. It means, oh, the scoring means a
2: lot more. Massive. Because I'm a college basketball fan, but it's like I don't worry when my team gets behind by 12 because they'll score. Yeah, they'll go on a run and score a bunch. And don't get me wrong. There's fun in that, and I'm not critical of other sports. There's something about soccer that is... It seems ineffable to me what it what it does
1: I think that's really fascinating that you said that you hated it to begin with, oh. because speaking from experience from my limited time of being in Nashville we'll be watching the games together, you are definitely one of the most passionate supporters that I've met in America, and maybe actually from like in a different level to the people back in England in terms of you're not as nasty as we are, <laughs> but you're definitely as passionate and that like it blows my mind that you did the complete one eighty from there.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of other people like me, and, and there are people, let's let's be really clear, there are people who are probably more passionate than I am, but my passion, my, I'm just the type of person where the passion just oozes out, and I can't sit still. I have to pace, et cetera. So I, th- I think there's lots of passionate fans who aren't as, ugh, as, as I am. I I, I don't know. I, I'm sure you guys do the same thing. I lose sleep over matches. I... I try to tell people, I don't celebrate victories, I feel relief, there's a difference. I okay. hate losses, draws sometimes can be okay, but victories just feel like relief, like thank God this is over for one more week.
0: So how did this season go for you? It <laughs> was a lot, oh. of, a lot of losses uh, that compared to victories. How did you manage this season?
2: Um, this was, uh, well none of, I have not, Simon's been around, longer as a fan, I'm sure you have as well. I've not experienced anything like this. Um, I don't know what to say except for I became pretty numb. I couldn't figure out what to do or what was gonna change. I thought, I was like everyone else. At first I just thought, okay, we're having a bad beginning of the season, this transition, et cetera. When we loaded on players in January, I thought everything changes now. Yeah. And it was just like we kept having to find ways to explain why isn't this working like oh these are new players it's a transitional period and yeah it it is and they haven't worked together yet but but there are other times in which it works like magic right and this was i don't i don't know i didn't know who to blame i just i really got to the point where i just wanted the season over with
1: that's the first time that's ever happened to me to be honest i think we've talked about this a lot on the previous episodes but being numb to it i I'm not sure that's how I felt that no matter how bad it was going to get, it can't get any worse than this. And it found a way to get worse as it went on. Even when we were mathematically safe, that loss against Man United, I think that was actually the lowest point of the season for me. What, what
0: do you think? I think I was already at a low, and I knew we were going to lose the game anyway. I think it was when we got battered by Arsenal. To me, that was a low. And then losing again to Tottenham. We don't lose to Tottenham. You know, we drew the first game in the beginning when Tuka was managing us, but then we lost. And to me, that, 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 was, that hurt me a lot because I really hate the Spurs. And to me, that was like the worst of the worst. And then, obviously, Lampard's so many losses in a row. You know, that was, to me, was like the depth of the abyss of Chelsea in my lifetime.
1: So, John, I'm eager to think, how are you mentally approaching this upcoming
2: season? Uh, extraordinarily cautiously. Uh, and uh, my expectations um my expectations quite frankly for um how we're going to perform are they're even a mystery to me but I think I'm emotionally preparing myself for again a mid-table type of season and I just don't I, th- I think that's emotional protection I don't know how else to put it it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah. it's re- its like uh you know that that like People talk about pre-morning. You already expect yeah, yeah. a loss beforehand so that if anything else happens, you feel great. Uh, I think I'm doing some of that this for the upcoming season. I'm going to be excited, though. It, it, at least we've got a new manager that I believe in. Uh, and as long as... They are all working together to keep the right players that he wants. And at least it feels like we've got more of a plan going into this right now. So I'm, I'm hopeful, but very cautiously so.
1: I think that's a sensible approach. And I think that leads in a little bit to, we've in terms of like a few updates in the last couple of days, we've sh- seemed to be shifting some players out. And today, Koulibaly was confirmed to be going to Saudi Arabia, which we'll talk about in a bit. But... Manny, what, what's your immediate reaction to some of the, the outgoings this week that we've had?
0: I think a lot of, I don't want to say dead weight, but I think a lot of our players that were just spots in the roster, Ziesh for one, I think getting rid of those players was huge. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Saudis coming in buying them, but what can you do? Money talks, we talked about that on the prior podcast, but I think we raise a lot of capital and I think Kai Havertz is is done i think arteta talked about him in person so i think that that's been signed they're just gonna you know do the actual public announcement at some point next week uh mason mount i think it's on his way out to Man U. there was some shuffling and some journalism uh craziness yesterday in terms of his camp saying that no we're not gonna we're, we're gonna pass them out manu's no longer gonna increase their bid to what chelsea thinks they should give in terms of mason mount but I think you know we have two incoming since our last podcast. Uh, Nicholas Jackson. I don't really don't know much about him outside of some YouTube videos that I watched. Uh, it's an eight-year contract. Is he going to be another Bakayoko? Who knows? Uh, and then we have obviously Nkuku, which I'm really excited about. So I think the two additions and losing the three players to Saudi Arabia and Ziesh for sure, and then Kovačić to Man City and Mount potentially. I think I think we're probably going to raise a lot of money. Uh, to offset some of those concerns that people have with this, this quote-unquote June 30th deadline.
1: Yeah, I, I've been very critical of our new owners, generally. I think it's been abundantly clear I've not really had that much faith in what they've tried to do. I have to give them props where it's due. I think the way that they've handled sh- already shifting some of these players out, and I think there's more to come. I've been quite impressed by how they've done it it's been pretty ruthless and I think with Havertz in particular as you mentioned last time I think we've told him either you sign a new contract or you're off and it's just been cutthroat and I think it's exactly what we need and I think Mount is is gone as well I think he's gone I think there's so much PR and posturing going on in public John what are your thoughts because we've talked about Havertz and Mount previously what are your thoughts on both of them potentially being shifted out?
2: Oh, I I I've got to say I think it's uh I think it's the best uh, it's the solution that's good for the team and for the player. I think Mountain needs to I don't I don't have a, any bad feelings about him and I think he's a very talented player. He's not working for us right now for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And that might change next season, but I think we don't know. We've got one year on his contract. This this is it. We've got value right now. He's not going to sign another contract. So let's 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 have him go somewhere. For the most, I don't know. For uh, you might have a better sense of what we're doing with United. I don't know if we're trying to hold them hostage or if we're finally gonna. They they say they've moved on. You say that's PR. That I don't know. That's bullshit. Yeah. Um, so uh, Havertz needed to go too, and I think he's again. This is one of those things where I know some Chelsea fans are like, don't sell him to a rival because he's going to succeed. I'm fine with it because he may fail too. We don't we don't know that. Just get the most money for him that we can right now, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I'm not against. I'm I'm not one of those. We actually, we've sold enough duds to Arsenal. What I feel fine about it, right? They've <laughs> they've given us money for people who were not warranted in the past. So, uh, <clears throat> David Louise, uh, William, they were secret agents. Yes. Yes. Uh, the the new signings. I want to hear you talk about why you're excited about Nkoku, because I'm always I'm I'm I've gotten to the point where unless I see somebody play at a top Premier League team, I don't have any prediction of how they're going to do when they come in. I never thought like Diego Costa. I've, he was thrilling, and I wouldn't have predicted that. I didn't know for sure because I just don't think I'm a good judge of these things.
1: Well, in terms of Nkoku, I have this apprehension about Bundesliga players, which I think has come from Werner and Havertz in particular. I think but I think there's something very different about Nkuku. He has he's unbelievably versatile and his strengths it's it's different in terms of Havertz's versatility. He offers something very, very different in terms of his attacking style. He is a very, very competent centre forward, but I think he's actually wasted in that position because you want to get him more involved with the play. He's a very dynamic, fast runner with the ball at his feet and he's unpredictable, like very, very unpredictable. And I think, actually, we're getting him for £52 million, pounds, which in the current market is pretty astounding. We got him for that lower fee, I think. And I think he could be in... A, obviously, we've been after him for a long time. We signed, like Malagusto, we signed him in advance because we know this year is the one where we wanted to let, get him in Get him acclimatized and get him going with a good coach, and I'm really excited about it. What do you, what do you think?
0: Yeah, and I'm not a big stats person like you, Sloop. I know <laughs> you harp on a lot of stats, especially in our Slack channel. But there is one stat <laughs> about Inkoo is that his finishing, in terms of his for shots on goal, is very high. It's higher than a lot of other Bundesliga players. I think it was like one of the top five finishers with shots on goal, with actually scoring. In the Bundesliga, So I think that was my apprehension of having Bundesliga players in the EPL. I think Haaland's Holling, probably the only one that's actually done well in terms of attacking style. Uh, De Bruyne, obviously, all-around midfielder. But I think Nkuku is a very, very good signing for us.
1: I found out something very interesting about Nkuku, actually. So he used to play for PSG before he signed for Red Bull Leipzig. And his coach at PSG, the game before he got shifted out, was Tuchel. And Tuchel played him at right wing back, which is the most Thomas Tuchel thing I've ever seen. For how many games? One. And then shifted him afterwards, sold him afterwards, which is just, I think is absolutely hilarious. (laughs) Like, you put him in right wing back and say, yeah, you're not very good at this. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a defender. I'm not interested. (laughs) Um, Talking about Tuchel. So one of Tuchel's legacy signings in Koulibaly was shifted out today. What's everyone's initial thoughts?
2: Uh, Koulibaly needed to go. I was glad to see him shifted out. I have to say he was the, I, I think the biggest disappointment for me as a signing. I had super high expectations. of him, so super that I had a couple of photos I was going to use all the time as memes whenever he performed well. And I, I was, I was just, I did not get to use them very often. I don't.
0: Yeah, no, I think we signed him three or four years too late. I think the Koulibaly that we wanted was the one that Antonio Conte wanted four years ago or four or five years ago, and I think he, he just was sort of towards the tail end of his career. His legs were not that, uh, you know, not to the speed of the Premier League compared to uh, the Italian League, and so I think it was four or five years too late. I, you know, when he first scored that goal against Tottenham, that, I was like, okay, we got a good goal scorer that we may have lost with Rudiger, you know, on set pieces, and this is maybe a good replacement, but then after that, it just was went downhill. And then he also had some injuries in the middle of the season as well. And he was just on some huge wages, huge Stagger. wages. I think he was number two, right, right mm-hmm. after Sterling in terms of being paid. And I think to me, shifting him out, it's huge for our wage deal. And we got money off of him. Yeah, I think it's just uh, try and think
1: about the transfer. Like the, It's really difficult to try and adjust my mindset to what we were like last season with the – new owners coming in and Tuchel was given for carte blanche to bring in who he wanted. And Koulibaly, I think it's unbelievable actually that Napoli got markedly better after he left. <laughs> and now the defenders who play in that team this season are now being linked with big money moves away. And I'm not saying that Koulibaly is associated to that, but it's just a funny, funny scenario that's happened. And as you said, I think 31 for someone who's been playing in Italy for the last decade is not the right time to try him out in the Premier League. I just don't think... Because the different kind of game, the Italian game is slow, it's ponderous, it's a lot more possession-based than like, in terms of less pressing. It's all about just defensive solidity. And I think when that he played much better in Europe than he did in the Premier League. Against Dortmund, I thought he was our best player over the two games, actually. But the, so the games in front of him, he doesn't have to think about his pace too much. The physicality of the Premier League is so hard it's so hard and if you were coming at the back end of your career after playing in a completely different culture
2: I think it's but this is why I we talk about how hard it is how physical this is why I am really scared to make predictions of anyone coming in from outside the league it's just I mean it's just tough you have to have a very very physical player that's the reason I was when I was drawing upon Diego Costa as an example I should have seen that he was he was actually the perfect sort of player to come into the Premier League so can I say one? I want to back up to say something that you said about statistics. The reason why I think we sometimes – I'm a passionate person, right? But sometimes as fans, we'll uh, uh, – Zayak, for example. Or, is that the way you pronounce his name? I've I been saying uh, Zayak, Z- but Z- 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 Mr.
1: Smiles. Let's just call him Mr. Smiles. Okay, let me just Smiling say this. Man. Let me Smiling just man. say
2: this. I, he's, he's a really good player, but his face, <laughs> his face makes fans say – I'm serious. You guys are making fun of him to begin with, right? But they will say that. One of my friends, Davy Shepard, who's a Chelsea fan, would often say to me, I just can't stand his face. And I'm I'm like, I get it, but this is when you have to look at the stats. And he was yeah, a better yeah. player than anyone ever gave him credit for. He was all – like there would be games where people would say, get him off the pitch, get him off the pitch, and I would look. And I'm like, guys, he's he's he just looks – like he didn't give a crap. has been does. told
1: that Santa is not is not real. On repeat, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is with Mister Smiles, I think everyone, everyone knows what a quality player is, and I think it's the first. This is what you're talking about in terms of the passion. It's like this is where I agree with you to a certain extent about data um, telling a lot more of the story. And I think the one thing that I've noticed about American football soccer fans is that. There's a lot more rationality to some of the analysis. And, like, c- growing up in a Chelsea household and, like, being surrounded by f- um, football supporters with, like, just had it ingrained in our, in our youth system, you just get annoyed at, like, things that are just not... N- like, are not quantifiable and not actually paying any impact into what's happening in the game. But, like, his face just fucking wound me up all the time. Just wound me up all the time, and I'm just, like... I, know, I I step away from the game and I'm like I'm being an idiot.
0: I'm being an idiot. It doesn't make any sense. But why is he looking like that? And to kind of expand upon that, also, it wasn't just his facial expressions. You know, <laughs> I think that there are parts of when you, when you watch him on the pitch, like he would just shut off. Yeah, you know, he wouldn't do the things that Mason Mount would do, or even Connor Gallagher. As much as we, you know, had a little bit of hate for Connor, he actually did the things that you didn't have to worry about in coaching press counter pressed you know try to win possession you wouldn't see that from zsh it was more lackadaisical he would always have great passes he always had a vision to find one of our strikers or whoever and try to get them the ball he was great on set pieces yeah. wheeling the ball in or even you know trying to use his left foot and, and score a goal like he did against the spurs usher but it was the intangibles that i just could not stand the fact that you would just watch him on the pitch and like all right, the guy that he's supposed to mark has already gone past him, he's not shutting down the lanes, and now, the you know, the defender's being able to get the ball into the midfield. And these are the things you, you may not see on stats, right? You may not pick up these things that it labeled in stats it's, it's all about passes that are being completed it's always about you know finding you know stuff like that but for okay. me it was a seeing eye test okay
2: okay but here's the problem and I'm going to shut up after this but but the thing is you won't see that show up in stats right because that you're right you're right about what you're saying but on the other hand because you look at a player and say this guy looks indifferent he looks lazy he does looks like he doesn't care then you see things that you don't see yeah. When you're looking at Conor Gallagher, who looks like he's hustling it in the game. So you're seeing eye test is blind and biased. So that's why stats have to be at least a big part of the story. But I understand not liking a face. I do. <laughs> Believe me, I get it. <laughs> so I,
1: I, slight hyper- hyperbole on that for me in terms of his face winding me up. It's more, <laughs> it's more about, and this is my frustration with Havertz as well, is that you've got, and this is the Chelsea players that I've disliked playing for us over the last, what, well, however long I've been watching Chelsea, is the ones who you know are brilliant and know can do wonderful things, but just don't do it nearly enough. And I don't know what those reasons are. It might be the system that we're playing in. It might be the change of coaches. It might be their attitude. It might be acclimatisation. You know, going back to Mason Mount for a second, the reason why he might want to leave London is what's happened in his personal life over the last year. We don't know. We don't know, like, with him having a stalker. I can't... if I had a stalker, I wouldn't be able to perform well at work because I'd be shitting myself the entire time that someone was like round the corner waiting for me. So you have to say that there's obviously different reasons for it. But for me, as a, as a fan, that used to that winds me up more than anything. It's like we have got these brilliant players who just don't do it nearly enough.
0: And think about as much as we used to hate on Team of Werner, he was actually a fan favorite because he put that effort on the pitch but right He's fucking useless yeah but he, he was useless but the fans they, they yeah, would always yeah. cheer him well on. they loved him because he actually put a lot of effort there on the pitch he'd make runs he was awful in the box when it came to <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but let's just oh.
2: the, but but the making runs made him not useless the, yeah, somebody yeah, had true, to defend him true. somebody had to try to absolutely. Him. absolutely i'm just i'm just saying that and can, that, and cow's and, the cow's ass with banjo and that
0: so. was the thing right you, you can't measure a lot of what he did on the pitch you know, he was very crucial in us scoring the Champions League goal with, right. with Kyle Havertz, right? Right. He drew out Kyle, uh, with Kyle Walker, I think, right? yeah, one yeah. of their center backs out, and it, and it left uh, Kyle Havertz on a one-on-one uh, with... Yeah, anyway. with, I was about to
2: say, with Walker, was, it's not an easy thing to... He's he's still fast. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. not an easy thing to do.
1: And Mbappe yeah. hasn't had much luck against him every time he's yeah. played. Him. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really interesting point as well. Like, going back to this season as well, like, I'm... I have a like slight bias towards Raheem Sterling as an England supporter. He's like, one of my favourite players playing for England before we signed him, and I was delighted that we did. But the example that I'm giving, when we played Arsenal at the Emirates, he had an awful first half. His, I think his pass completion rate was like 40% or something, which is just dreadful. But he made some unbelievable runs when we were through with the ball that... I don't think the stats can pick that up. They can, like, obviously... Well, the stats that we know of don't pick that up. So fans will say, will come to me and say, oh, you know, he only had 40% pass completion rate. But he could have been through on goal twice in that game if the if the person on the board picked out the right pass at that time. And I just, I'm eager to know behind the scenes because they must be working on... they like, Bowley and Clear Lake are uh, data-driven businessmen, aren't they? And that's how they run the sports teams as well. They they see that as well, they must see that as well in terms of quantifying it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think the data thing is interesting. Very
2: interesting. Well, the, the beauty is it's never going to be a perfect science, right? So we always are gonna have those space for, the teams are gonna have the space for making bad judgments and judgments. And we as a fan base are always gonna be able to argue over those things, what we don't see, what's not being counted, what, you know. Uh, and what's the value of a bunch of you know completed passes if you're not going anywhere you yeah. that's uh, there's always going to be room for arguments over these
0: for sure that was a very long discussion on Hakim Ziyech <laughs> sorry
2: I, I know we we you can you can you can subtitle the episode you know. yeah. <laughs> so next part we'll talk about
0: havertz i'm joking <laughs> Havertz's face no but it is quite of an end of an era right you are seeing the champions league squad of 2021 and you know how many players do we have left Thiago silva 3 Maybe yeah, Silva, Asplund, He's probably going to be gone. So it's
2: Ch- James, Chilwell, Kepper, and,
0: and uh, yeah, Mendy Silva. That's it. Silva, yeah, yeah. Three, three players three. left three. on that starting lineup. from the starting lineup. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: different. I thought you were talking about anywhere on well, even the bench,
0: right? Giroud was on the bench. Tammy Abraham was on the bench. Billy Gilmore, Billy Gilmore, <laughs> Pulisic. He's probably going to be gone somewhere in Italy or Germany. Who knows?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Like, yeah, the way they've turned it around has been pretty incredible. Um so, John, in terms of Chelsea, I know we've talked about a little bit of your previous history. You took a kind of leading role in setting up the Nashville-Chelsea-Music City Blues group. How did that start? And-
2: well, uh, I, I want to give... Uh, I, I want to make sure this is clear. Whatever story I tell, uh, your friend David Bone is going to have some opposition to it, <laughs> but I will tell you how, this, uh, how the official group went. Uh, so, so David Bone had, in fact, been watching with a group of people... Uh, Chelsea before, but they weren't organized or part of the national organization. I um I I kept watching games on my own. And I kept thinking there's gotta be some group here. And I was watching with the American outlaws, I was watching the US games and I finally started, you know, asking who who are the Chelsea people and met Kyle Lehman, et cetera. And then I I had written to the Chelsea in America group and I said, I wanna start uh, not a franchise, whatever. I want to get an official group going here. And uh, they wrote back and said, it was almost a, it was almost like MLS rules. Somebody else has already made a claim for this. And so you're going to have to work it out with him. And I was like, who the hell is that? <laughs> and they said, we don't know. We just have a Twitter account. It's the one we still use. Oh, amazing. It was Ryan Green I had started. I didn't know Ryan. So I wrote him. And he said, yeah, let's get together. He and I met, talked a little bit, went up to we we traveled together to watch Chelsea in Indianapolis. What, uh, what year is
0: this? Uh, Twenty thirteen. Yeah,
2: right? I, yeah, whatever you know. We've, we've talked about yeah, the anniversary. Yeah, yeah. This, is
0: a, this is our ten year anniversary this year. Oh, actually. amazing!
2: Yeah. And then I uh, sent an email out to all the names that I had gathered, which was maybe fifteen, and telling people what we were going to do if they wanted to be in or not. Everyone wanted to be in. Uh, I got an email from David Bone saying. Hey, I just looked you up online. You ride my bus sometimes. And so we got to know each other that way. Uh, Soon discovered uh, the first year, I would say, you know, we had uh, Ryan was sort of the official president or what have you. If you were looking for lineage, we discovered immediately the first year that that we needed. uh, I keep mentioning, but we needed to have David Bone as a central place because he was he was. He was loud. He was obnoxious at the right, you know, at Fleet Street. Sounds I very to... Chelsea. Yeah, I, like I know, it. and it was it was perfect for Fleet Street because we used to watch with Spurs, with Arsenal, with other teams. Like there was a we had one bar for a bunch of us, um, and so that was good to have someone loud who really forced us to be different and us take up space there. Um, and so you know, from then it just it just moved on. We've got new people in, et cetera. More people came along. Uh, Manny, you were with us for a long time before I met you. I mean, you just couldn't make games for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, I think
0: my first game was in 2017, the year that we won uh, with Conte, I think. Or was that, I think it was, yeah, 2017. It was yeah, 2016, yeah. 17. Uh, yeah, that was the first oh, one. Oh, Yeah. So I brought the magic that year for the Music City Blues. It <laughs> was, we was an amazing year. We were at Skulls. Yeah. We were at Skulls, yeah. uh, that's where we first watched. And then we moved from there to another, <laughs> another bar. And then some. Something happened politically or the bar staff got fired or something. There was there was some
2: or... embezzlement going yeah. on. Can, we, we can you
1: tell for the non-Nashville people what Skulls is? Because I feel that... that I, it blew my mind when I found out they used to watch the games there.
2: Skulls Rainbow Room.
1: Yeah, yeah. It blew yeah. your mind about like the cabaret bar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like yeah but you know, bars, so this it? is this
2: is the new iteration of the bar that was there. The yeah. same place. Um, it was a it was a cabaret bar. Uh, really big back in the uh, '70s, um, uh, and I mean it's the, it's the one. Um, so Paul McCartney used to go down there and play when he was here recording an album one time. So it, it was just—it's a very famous bar yeah, uh, yeah, for yeah. all of this. If you—if you know the song, uh, "Sally G." It's a country song that was a B-side for Paul McCartney, and it has the, uh, has the lines, Nightlife took me down to print, Printer's Alley, where I sang a song, and he was talking about oh, Skull's, Rainbow's Room. And In fact, when he was in town playing a concert like four or five years ago, his representative called down to the new Rainbow Room, the Skull's Rainbow Room, to see if he could come down and play. That's amazing. And they didn't... I was going to say they told him no, they didn't. <laughs> they were very excited about <laughs> no, it. No, actually, he was showing the Chelsea out. game, yeah. so... <laughs> Yeah, Uh, but yeah, we've moved around a lot like a lot of the clubs have had to move around. Uh, uh, We're at tailgate now and they've been very, very good to us. I'm I'm excited about that.
1: Yeah, they're awesome. Okay, so that brings us to the end of part one with our conversation with John. John, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us. And we're actually going to be back with a second part very soon to talk about some other things uh, in regards to Nashville and football in the local community. But thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you very soon.